0: Kei chi mai, koe ki na kōrero o tamaki makoto. You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it connects to it. At the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then on to the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in family and local history from New Zealand, the Pacific, and beyond. Your heritage now. We
1: tend to think of disasters as natural disasters, but that also overlooks disasters which are, as it were, man-made or economic disasters. And I think throughout this work, We've tried to show that whether a disaster or an event is natural or man-made, it tends to have the same effects and repercussions both in the immediate aftermath and long-term.
0: Kia ora koutou and thanks for joining us again. Today's talk is delivered by Xavier Forsman, Kiri Rangahau Māori at Research North, and he reviews the 1931 Hawke's Bay earthquake from a Tia Māori perspective. He breaks down the Māori concept of mana as an illustration of the unique way in which the Māori community were impacted by this disaster, and the ways in which recovery was intimately tied to the restoration of mana. His work in this area also led Xavier to the story of the Fakatu freezing works, and the further impact its closure had on a close-knit community. In the following presentation, both events are discussed in terms of disaster, environmental and economic, offering a deeper understanding of their wider impact and ways in which we might better embrace new opportunities moving forward with a shared understanding. To view some images of the earthquake and its aftermath, follow the links on this page to Auckland Library's heritage collections. Haramai titahi ahoa. Enjoy
1: the journey, and we'll see you again soon. E te the uh, we to So, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Xavier Forsman, and I'm very pleased to uh, be here to share with you some of my uh, research. Uh, this work, as part of my thesis, was done under the banner of a uh, wider research study uh, in which I was involved. I was working with J.C. Guyard as well as some colleagues from Auckland, uh, Massey and Victoria Universities. The the idea for looking at the earthquake from a Maori account came out because the earthquake itself is pretty well documented as far as uh, publications and photos are concerned but I discovered that the the Maori side was comparatively neglected. So, What I sought out to do was to try and put on record some of those uh, accounts with the thought that they might help build a a bigger picture of how how the earthquake affected the Maori communities there, and also uh, how the legacy of the earthquake affects the people living in Hawke's Bay now. What I will say is that I submitted my thesis about two years ago now, and I'd like to think that over that time, uh, that my ideas and thoughts have had to mature, that I can explain what I did now better than how I wrote it two years ago when I was under pressure. (laughs) So I hope that's the case for today. The basis of my research was, I think, fairly simple. It was wanting to look at how different cultures, in particular Maori, how disasters are conceived uh, by, by the Maori. And with that, wanting to find out how these conceptions of disaster influence the modes of response and recovery but also wanting to apply a long-term outlook in the years and decades following to determine how these traditional bases of understanding are relevant today in the decades following disasters. When we think of recovery, we often think of the immediate time frame following a disaster. What we're wanting to put forward with this study and the EQC work, is that recovery is really a long-term process. It takes years and decades to fully unfold. And in that time frame, there are things which, uh, especially cultural matters, which tend to get uh, get neglected. So what we're wanting to see is whether there's some sort of framework or way of looking at these cultural aspects to... uh, see that they are understood, and how they might help us when it comes to disaster response and recovery in the future. If we go to how Maori have traditionally conceived disasters, I think the easiest point to start is looking at the word aitua. In Maori oratory, a common phrase is tēnā aitua maha, which means an acknowledgement to typically the dead or those who have fallen where, where aitua becomes a personification, as it were of death or misfortune As far as what disasters in this Maori framing entail they entail things like illness, death and misfortune and this one here being a loss of mana is Something which came about during the course of my field work and is a strand that uh, I'll be looking at in detail in this talk. If we delve further into a Maori perspective, uh, we can look at the so-called teo Maori or the Maori worldview. And in that worldview are concepts like atua or gods and deities, which are Considered as constructs used to make sense of events and phenomena. And things which have happened, the traditional way of thinking was to attribute them to acts of atua. Other concepts such as rangatiratanga or chieftainship and mana, uh, which I've uh, translated as being uh, status, authority, as, or prestige are also worth considering when we think of a a traditional Māori perspective. In this teo Māori framing, perhaps the most important aspect to consider is the way in which knowledge in a Māori framing was passed down. I think it's well known that prior to the Europeans arriving uh, to New Zealand, there was no written word, so all events and stories and phenomena were passed down through oral tradition. The success of the oral tradition was dependent on the social organisation, so having tribal groups such as hapu and later on iwi, the close-knit and the uh, togetherness of these tribal groups was important as far as being able to uh, pass down tribal knowledge and having that knowledge retained. Oral traditions provide metaphorical accounts of these events and phenomena. So, somebody, an outsider or somebody unfamiliar with the cultural context coming to uh, try and read or decipher this oral tradition um, may not understand it at first glance. So, for instance, uh, a river swelling may be interpreted as a tanifa, or a supernatural creature, rising from the water or an earthquake being the result of Ruomoko, or the god of earthquakes In short, it is a codified way of um, understanding natural events and if we think of the way in which events such as earthquakes are written about On one side, we have what we can call the technical knowledge, so scientific or geological knowledge, which give us data like um, like magnitude and understanding the extent of an event. The other side to that, we can bring in this old tradition, this local knowledge. And that gives us a cultural insight into... These events so together they build a picture of understanding the nature of these events how they take place and the effects that they have on the communities which are affected by them anyone who knows me will know I'm a big fan of Sir Peter Buck and uh, I quite like what he had to say regarding old tradition and that it provides us an indirect language which does make it fun when it comes to interpreting it but with that indirectness does come problems verification is one of them oral tradition is not usually subject to the rigors of the academic or the scientific world so the verification really lies within the people or the group that is transmitting that knowledge because it's indirect language it can be ambiguous so if you're an outsider coming in, how can you be sure that your interpretation is correct? And with the uh, with the generational nature of oral tradition passing down through multiple generations, how too can we be sure that that knowledge remains in its original form? Embellishment too. I think it's fair to say that Stories which come from old tradition, uh, they have the potential to be exaggerated in order to meet the fancy of an unfamiliar audience. So we have to take care as far as that's concerned. And so Terangi Hiro or Sir Peter Buck summed up embellishment well, wherein he uh, makes the distinction between a translation and an inter- interpolation. And from uh, From an academic point of view, there is the tendency to go for a translation in order to stick as close as possible to the original meaning. At the same time, uh, acknowledging that interpolations or slight changes to the original source can occur in order to fit the context or, as we said before, to meet the fancy of a particular audience. I want to return to this word mana. It's one of those words that's made its way into the New Zealand vernacular and it's not only amongst Maori. It's also one of those words that's hard to provide one uh, English translation to it. So, the words I've used to equate mana, uh, status, authority and prestige. And I think for the remainder of this talk I'll be leaning more towards prestige. In a traditional sense, mana was a chiefly status which came from the gods. The chief of a tribe bore the mana or the status or authority of his tribe. So what that meant was if events which affected the chief of a tribe occurred, whether they were favourable or unfavourable, they would also affect The tribe at large. So, mana tends to be thought of as this abstract, undefinable source, but as Sir Peter Buck puts it, we can also consider it as a way of understanding the result of human achievement, of successive and successful human achievements. And it's this thought which came to my mind when. Uh, undertaking my research in Hawke's Bay. So at all events, with these thoughts came some uh, questions which underpinned the research. So if mana is the result of successive human achievements, then disasters which disrupt this achievement, do they subsequently diminish mana? And consequently, if disasters entail a loss of mana, does recovery then involve restoring it? And it was these two basic questions which motivated my study. The earthquake is often referred to in general media as the Napier earthquake, and that's how I heard about it growing up, the Napier earthquake but it doesn't quite capture the full extent of the earthquake and the effects that it had. One good reason it is called the Napier earthquake is because of the change in geography it brought out to Napier. The earthquake uplifted the Ahuriri lagoon, and in the years following, the, um, the lagoon was drained and then land was subsequently reclaimed. Where this ties in for the Maori account of the earthquake is in the stories and indeed the old traditions surrounding Ahuriri Lagoon. The lagoon uh, the waterways in the lagoon were uh, fishing grounds for the Maori tribes which lived in the region. With the European arrival in the 19th century and the subsequent population growth, uh, the waterways in the lagoon became increasingly polluted. There was the thought amongst those tribes that should this pollution continue and not be rectified, that something bad would happen. This story of the lagoon also ties in with the story of Pania. In Napier, there is a statue on Marine Parade called Pania of the Reef. The story of Pania is that she was a, a maiden who uh, descended from Tangaroa, the god of the seas. And during the day, she would go out to sea to be with the sea life, and in the evening, she would come ashore. Pania caught the attention of a chief in Napier. His name was Karitoki and he lived at Mataruaho, or known today as Bluff Hill. They cohabited and produced a son named Moremore and he was named that because he was born without hair. Karitoki was anxious at Pania going out to sea during the day and so in order to stop this happening he consulted a tōhunga or an expert and asked his tōhunga if there's anything he could do to stop Pania going out to sea. And so the tōhunga suggested that Karitoki should present Pania and, and their son with a piece of cooked kumra while they slept. And that would stop Pania from going out to sea. Unfortunately, something went amiss and when the kumara was presented Pānia went away to sea never to return and their son Morimori took the shape of a shark and Morimori is regarded by the tribes of the Ahuriri area as the guardian or the kaitiaki of the waters Following on from that story and from From an interview with an elder in Napier, he recalled the story of an elder, of another elder who was walking on the morning of the earthquake. And he was walking along the water when he saw two boys with rifles, and they looked to be shooting at something in the water. And so the elder looked over, and he saw that what they were shooting at was a shark fin. And this elder was convinced that the boys were shooting at morimori, kaitiaki. And so the elder told the boys off, and they scarpered. And then he went home, settled in for the morning, and thought nothing of it. Later that morning, the earthquake happened. And so with that, with that event and with that conception came the... Uh, the assumption that the, the earthquake occurred as a result of Mori the kaitiaki, being disturbed and also as a result of the waterways being um, polluted. By and large, the immediate recovery from the earthquake went well. With most of the damage occurring in the built-up areas, uh, refugee shelters were quickly established and uh, and other places for accommodation. But something which doesn't feature too prominently in the written accounts of the earthquake were the roles of marae. Kahurānaki marae, for instance, took in a lot of people who lost their homes from the earthquake. And here comes the idea that a marae to which a particular tribe is affiliated, is adequately provisioned to provide for people at short notice, to provide shelter, food, bedding and things which are needed in times of disaster. The Maori concept often used to uh, express this hospitality is manakitanga, and so kahurānaki was one of the Marae which featured and there were, there were stories about, um, about the, uh, the Maori who were affiliated to these tribes going out and extending their hospitality uh, to those who needed it. The spiritual aspect of, um, of a marae being offered as a place of shelter is that the Farenui or the meeting house uh, can be considered an ancestral meeting house, it's the physical embodiment of an ancestor, so the spiritual perspective of being able to offer that shelter is that people who need shelter are invited within this ancestral space uh, as a way of promoting care and concern uh, for those affected. And here I'd like to bring in again this idea of mana. So in answering or attempting to answer the questions which I posed about disasters being a loss of mana, the occurrence of the earthquake can be considered a loss of mana because for the tribes who used the fishing ground, the loss of their waterways was a loss of livelihood. And... It also caused a disruption to their everyday life. And because that waterway or the pollution of the waterway was thought to have angered the gods, it can be thought to have diminished the mana of that, of those tribes. If mana is, say, the top level, as it were, of mana, being a celestial or the more spiritual realm of mana, so it's talking about the prestige of living life to a higher authority. So we being those gods, or, or um, if the deities are angered, then that mana which is diminished, the effects can also go down to these other levels. So the ancestral levels, um, where disaster was thought to be a punishment by the gods, would also be considered shameful for ancestors. On the other side of that, feats which are um, successful and exploits are often expressed in order to inspire those who are living. Going down further again to the communal level, so the, the extended family, and in times of adversity, people do come together and draw on those community links. And with that adversity comes a community spirit which manifests itself in pragmatic ways such as providing hospitality to others and that was demonstrated by the um, marais at the time of the earthquake offering shelter There is of course the mana at the individual level So an individual's mana is really underpinned by these levels of mana which are higher up The idea of including the whakatū freezing works in my study came about uh, while I was in Hawke's Bay doing field work. I approached some people and told them that I was doing research on disasters, and the response was, if you want to look at the disaster, why not look at the closures of the freezing works? The... Whakatu Works was along with Tuomwana, the two main freezing works in the Hawke's Bay. And Whakatu opened for operation in 1951 and uh, 1915, and its operation spanned seven decades. At its peak, the Maori workforce comprised about 40%, and with that, it became Part of the social and economic fabric uh, for Maori who were adjusting to urban life, particularly in those post war years. The closure of the Whakatu Works came in 1986. It was, from my understanding, amidst the economic reforms of that decade. And Vera Keefe Ormsby, who was a, a researcher who had herself worked at Whakatū, described the works as a traumatic industrial earthquake for the Hawke's Bay community. And I thought that was very telling because we tend to think of disasters as natural disasters, but that also overlooks disasters which are, as it were, man-made or economic disasters. And I think throughout this work, um, I've, we've tried to show that whether a disaster or an event is natural or man-made, it tends to have the same effects and repercussions both in the immediate aftermath and long term. For many Māori who came to Whakatū in the post-war years, they were moving away from their tribal districts and in adjusting to the uh, the urban life The works became, as it were, almost a marae in the sense that uh, that the the Maori language and the customs were taught there, and it became a bastion for the young Maori workers to experience those aspects of Maori culture that would otherwise have been um, otherwise would have to have gone back to their tribal areas in order to experience it. One example I can recall from talking with Des Ratama is that this community plan done by the Whakatū Project Control Group uh, looks at uh, in trying to include children in the uh, in the growth and prosperity of Whakatū. And it's telling because the people who spearhead this project, most of whom uh, were Know firsthand the effects of the freezing works closures, and so trying to move beyond the uh, uh, the losses and fashioning out new opportunities both for themselves and for the generations to come. So, if we ask ourselves uh, what disasters constitute, as far as the loss of mana is concerned. So both disasters did disrupt the pattern of everyday life of the communities which were affected by them. The 1931 earthquake can be thought of as a loss of mana because it's traditionally conceived as a punishment by the gods, the pollution and the inability to keep caring for that body of water. The 1986 works closure can be considered a loss of mana in the sense that it entailed a sudden loss of livelihood, the inability to provide, um, which subsequently diminishes prestige, but also uh, leads to having to fashion out other opportunities. As far as mana being expressed is concerned, uh, a tangible example from the Hawke's Bay earthquake being the Fari the nui, uh, providing shelter for stricken locals um, and also the intangible aspect in that these whare nui can be regarded as physical embodiments of the tribal ancestors. Recovery and uh, mana for the works, so community cooperation being spearheaded by people most of whom experienced firsthand the difficulties of the works closure, so from there experiencing adversity Um, can also lead to fashioning out further opportunities. For as far as uh, recovery of mana is concerned, it also helps us acknowledge that there is more to the losses from disasters than just the material aspects. There is the spiritual aspect, so the connection that the tribes of Ahuriri Lagoon had to their waterway, and also the sense of belonging that the people of Whakatū had to the works. And on that note, I would like to end with a Māori phrase that was often used by the likes of Sir Apirana and Sir Peter Buck and which I think is appropriate to understanding recovery. The phrase is, kāpu te ruha, kāhao te rangatai, which means the old net is cast aside and the new net goes a-fishing. The recovery being uh, trying to fashion out a new net in order to uh, create opportunities and to restore the prestige of life in the face of adversity. Thank you very much.
0: If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the talks page at soundcloud.com. All links are in the talk notes.